Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. And we'll be looking at Acts 17, 16 through 34. And as I was worshiping the Lord with you, I really sensed strongly that this God, the one who sent his son into the world, and his exaltation should lead us to do everything we can in his strength to bring the message to the world. Because many people don't know that Christ is at the right hand of the Father in the great resplendent glory that we read about in Revelation chapter 1. And so sadly, people are worshiping the wrong gods. And the going God today is called self. And the God of self will never save. The God of self will never give total fulfillment. I was in an establishment recently uh, talking to a fellow that I struck up a conversation with who is a musician. And I love to talk about music, and he had opened for some great blues acts over the years. And he was talking about how when, sometimes when you play music, you get into this place where everything fits together, and there's something greater than the individual musicians. And some of you are musicians, I think, have experienced that. And this fellow, Bill, said, at some point, you just have to recognize the great unknown. And I said, Bill, I can tell you who the great unknown is. The great unknown is not unknown. That's God. Because people can have a sense of God's goodness and presence and a sense of awe, even if they're not Christians, because God is reaching out to them. So we talk more about God and a bit about Christ and so on. And this is maybe an example of how we should bring the message of Christ, his gospel of forgiveness and grace, into a needy and wanting world. We should be ready. We should have a reason for the hope that is within us and present it with gentleness and respect to anyone who asks us why we believe. Anywhere, not simply in the assembled church, but where we work, our friends, our family, any kind of communication, spoken, written, We need to understand how to bring the message of this crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, ascended Lord who is at the right hand of the Father in the way that John described. The only one worthy of worship. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son came to enter our world to live a truly human and perfect life, was worshipped as God, said he had to go to the cross, made it very clear, said the Son of God came to seek and to save that which was lost and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that if you believe in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, you will not perish but have everlasting life. But that means you have to shift. You have to shift your attention and your affection from yourself to your Creator, from the finite, the limited, to the unlimited and perfect God. And it's only by having that reference in your creator, designer, the infinite personal God, that you can have meaning and understanding as a limited being. You're finite. You're created. You're contingent. But God has not left us alone in our limitedness. He's not left us alone in our moral guilt. But he has invaded this planet. Now, this text helps us to understand the meaning of Christian witness. This is in first century Athens. We'll find the Apostle Paul engaging the thought of his day, first in Thessalonica, then in Berea. But the principles here in God's living and active word, which will not pass away, are applicable to any situation at any time. So let's consider this. Paul had been with his teammates teaching and preaching and defending the gospel in Thessalonica and then in Berea. So he would interact with people. He would go into the synagogue and teach the message. Some would accept it, become followers of Christ. Some would reject it. And some, in fact, stirred up riots because they were so bothered by this man. 
that they got some evil people in the crowd, stirred them up. So Paul and his co-workers had to flee from Thessalonica to Berea. He teaches and preaches there. The Bereans test everything he says against Scripture, which we should do with every claim. Some of them become Christians. Some of them don't. And then they try to stir up the crowd again. The same people that stirred up the crowd in Thessalonica hear about Berea. They're still angry. They're still jealous. So they show up there and start a riot. And this time Paul flees by himself. And he ends up in Athens. Athens was the premier cultural center of the Roman Empire. It was a freestanding state. They didn't have to pay taxes to Rome. It was a place of great human pride. This is the city of Socrates and the great poets and dramatists. And Paul comes to Rome. He comes to Athens, rather. And we see his determination, his passion, his cultural alertness to read the signs of the times, and his savvy in proclaiming and defending the gospel. So let's pick this up at verse 16. I'll read 16 through 23 and make some comments. While Paul was waiting for them, that is Silas and Timothy, who are back in Berea, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there, taking every opportunity he can to reason with them because he's concerned that the truth be made known to the Jew and to the Greek. Verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. I'm a philosopher and we like to debate, so this certainly rings true. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. This is something like a university town, a lot of intellectual debate and discussion. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you were ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Now there's a lot here, but we find principles that are very helpful in Christian witness from one of the tremendous heroes of the Christian movement. This is an unscheduled mission trip. We usually schedule and plan mission trips, but when the Spirit is moving and you're dedicated and you're being impelled by the Spirit of truth, you find yourself sometimes in places you would not normally go with things that you didn't expect to say. And this is what we see with Paul. Notice also his tenacity because he has already had evangelistic success in Thessalonica, but then they kick him out. He has to flee. And then he goes to Berea. People study the scripture and they respond. And some people are still angry. The same people from Thessalonica. He has to flee again. This time he's by himself. Now, the significance of this, just given the fact that he's there, is that this is not normal. Right? If you have mixed results and you have to flee town you know, go to Talkeetna or something. And, and then once you get there, they get upset, and then you have to go somewhere else. You might think, I had some success, the Lord is with me, but this isn't really working out the way I planned. But notice that Paul keeps going. And notice also in verse 16, the text tells us that he was greatly distressed in his spirit. Now, this is ancient Athens. It was not quite at its glory, But it was still the city of the intellectuals. It's where Socrates walked around and talked philosophy. But instead of remarking about how amazing this culture was, 
he was greatly distressed in his spirit. Why? was full of idols. And Paul worships the one true God that could never be depicted in an idol that would take away from his infinite glory. So he's exercised. And read this translation and read this verse in various translations. There are different ways it's put, but greatly distressed, bothered, but he does not fly out of control. He doesn't have a fit of rage. He doesn't insult the people he's dealing with. But he goes into the marketplace and to the synagogue. So he's willing to go anywhere that will have him where he can explain and defend the gospel and interact with the people there. And we see in the book of Acts that when he deals with Jews, he argues from the Hebrew Bible because they know that. They revere it. When he deals with non-Jews, he appeals to what they can know from nature and some true things in their own philosophies. So Paul is missiologically adept. That simply means he knew where he was and how he should say what he needs to say. And we should ask the Holy Spirit to give us that as well. As we're in the Scripture, we're praying for unbelieving folks, we're looking at our culture in such decline, especially in sexual ethics and other areas and all the racial tensions around the world and in the United States. We should ask God to give us this spirit of discernment to read the signs of the times, to Understand the times so we know what we should do and what the church should do, the Christian movement should do around the world. Now notice that he encounters some philosophers, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and they're not very nice to him. They say, what is this babbler trying to say? The word babbler in Greek means a seed picker, and it means a bird that would go into the marketplace or anywhere, and just pick up seeds randomly. The idea is Paul has a little bit of this idea, a little bit of that idea. He mixes in something else. He's just a seed picker. Now, you might think that that's the end of Paul's witness. You get called a seed picker and you go home. But what happens is something about what he says engages them. So they say, well, you're a babbler, but we'd still like to hear more of what you have to say. Now, notice the lack of ego in Paul. Because first of all, he has courage in the Lord. He has a sound mind and he has fire in his bones and love in his heart for lost people, people that need to know Christ to be forgiven and saved from God's judgment. He has fire in his bones. He is rejected. He has to flee. And now he comes to this great ancient city of Athens, the intellectual capital of the Roman Empire, and he expostulates what he knows. He's a brilliant man. What happens? You're a seed picker. Now, if you have a huge ego, you get angry or you take your arguments and go home. But something about Paul that was attractive to these people. So they say, we want to hear more about this. And these are philosophers. And philosophers can be quite fussy and crusty and insulting. But he keeps going. So Paul says, people of Athens, I see that in every way that you are very religious. So he understands that they're interested in something above this world, something transcendent. They're looking for meaning. The word religious there is a neutral word. It basically means what we would mean by spirituality. I see you're spiritual. He doesn't say, I see that you're right with God. He doesn't say, I see that you're a flaming idolater. He finds that term in this setting, the Areopagus, which was a privileged lecture situation. And he finds common ground. Now, if he's speaking to Jews, he would appeal to the Scriptures because they trust the Scriptures. And he'd say, all these promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who lived, died, rose again, and is calling everyone to repent. But you see, Paul knows how to strategize. He knows how to improvise in his situation because he's alive to God and he has big ears to hear what's going on in his culture And he takes the message of God and he looks at his condition and then he applies the message in the right way at the right time. So you are very religious. And he says, I walked around and found that you had an altar to an unknown God. Now there was a saying at the time, a proverb, that in Athens they had more idols than people. And just in case they missed one of the gods, they had an altar to an unknown God. Notice the tact that Paul has. He's honoring their culture in the sense... 
He says, I have looked around. I understand something about what you believe. And we see that more later in the text. And I see you have an altar to an unknown God. Well, what you don't know, I'm going to tell you. So here is this powerful claim of revelation, a spoken word from the creator and designer and sustainer of the universe. God is a God who speaks. And in the Greek tradition, it was pretty much human beings trying to grope their way to find God, but they hadn't found him. So they have all these idols and even an inscription to an unknown God, just in case we missed an important one. So Paul, who has been authorized by Jesus Christ, who was converted from his fruitless life in Judaism, as he put it, is going to bring the message to the philosophers of his day. This is a very significant opportunity for the gospel. And we need to find our own Areopagus. We need to find the place where we can minister to people. And ask God to increase your ministry with respect to your abilities. You never want your reach to, ex- to extend beyond your depth. And we live in a culture of advertising and ego casting and image mongering. But Christian ministry, based on the scriptures and the Holy Spirit, and in alignment with the great traditions of the church and the heroes, the martyrs and the saints of the church, is based on truth through personality. Character. Where should I shine? Where should I stay away? Because I'm not equipped to do it. So find what your gifts are. Where is your Areopagus? Certainly it's your family and friends and neighbors. It might be the state legislature. I spoke to someone earlier who is a state senator here. It may be in writing. It may be in teaching. But don't be afraid. Be persistent. And keep pursuing God as you attempt to reach people. Now notice, as I mentioned, that while he was belittled, he did not get offended. And we need to have soft hearts for the Lord and a warm heart for people, but also a kind of thick skin. That is, we will face people who sneer at us. We'll face people who don't understand us and think we're dumb. You know, sometimes we are. So then we have to repent and get up to speed. But sometimes people unfairly criticize us. I was speaking in a group several years ago on the biblical view of gender. And of course, that's very controversial, 2009 and even more so now. And someone asked me about my views on sex outside of heterosexual marriage. And I said, heterosexual marriage is God's design. That's how we flourish. And anything outside of God's design is a perversion of what he intends for us. I put it almost exactly like that. And the two students I was talking to literally laughed. They turned away and laughed. So it's sort of like sneering, isn't it? But they came back and continued to talk with me. So God gave me the grace to not get angry or say, how dare you challenge what the Scripture says. We continued a fruitful conversation for some time after that. So let's look at the heart of Paul's speech with respect to the Christian worldview, the Christian account of reality that the Bible reveals to us and how that differs from the worldview he was encountering. He deals with what God has revealed about himself, about humanity, Christ, repentance, and judgment. If you read the speech, it's fairly short, just a few minutes. You read it out loud. Probably it was quite long, and what we have is very likely from the author Luke, the great historian and theologian, is a synopsis, or an overview of what Paul said. So all these verses could probably be expanded on for 10, 20 minutes or more. Let's look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. So he's starting out with the reality, the objective facticity of God not something that is contained by an idol or contained by any human structure. Neither the Epicurean philosophers nor the Stoic philosophers believed in a divine creation. They didn't believe in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And all things were made through Him. Genesis 1 and John 1. 
They believed in an eternal universe. So Paul is staking out the creator-creation distinction, which is going to obliterate the worship of idols. And he continues to expound and to argue this. The Epicureans believed in kind of a universal energy or force or principle, but this energy was not a person. This was not an I am. This was an it is. So they believed in a God that was present, but not a God who speaks, who acts in history, who created the universe. Now, the Epicureans were known for the enjoyment of the fine things of life. You attune your senses to get the most benefit and pleasure out of anything that you do. And how many catering companies are called Epicurean Catering Service or something like that? But they did not believe in a creator. They believed that there were various gods, but the gods had nothing to do with the human race. So because of that, God is not in their knowledge. They're holding down the truth and unrighteousness. What do you do? Well, you appeal to creation and you appeal to yourself, your feelings, maximize pleasure. Sound familiar? And Paul is challenging all that. God is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is a personal being. He is all-powerful. The Epicureans denied this. The Stoics viewed God as an impersonal power, pantheism. But God, the creator of heaven and earth, is not finite. He's not limited. He does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's look at 25. Paul says, And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. This is a very significant verse in the Bible on the identity of God. One of our challenges in our day is that people throw around the word God without very much knowledge. They trouble the air without wisdom. God. God this, God that, or I know God, or my God and your God. We tend to think of God on our level or to conform God to our image of who we think God should be, which means we're playing Lord over the Lord. Not a good thing for creatures to do. We have to think of a being who is eternal. No one in this room is eternal in terms of the past. You came into being by God's will. God is eternal and he is self-existent. No one in this room is self existent. We decay. We need food. We need medicine. Uh, We need to have housing, shelter. But God doesn't depend on anything or anyone outside of himself. He's the great I am from all eternity. So once you get that understood, you face and reflect and live out that reality, then your life always will have a vertical dimension as well as a horizontal dimension. Because you'll, think he, you'll be thinking about things before God, before the face of God. God's the creator. He's providential. He's invaded the world in Christ. Paul gets to that. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everything life and breath and everything else. The New English Bible puts it this way. It is not because he lacks anything that he accepts service at men's hands. God delights in our worship. I don't know about you, but I sense that a lot in this service. He delights in that. God inhabits the praises of his people, Scripture tells us. But God is not needy in the sense that we are. So God, before the universe, was perfect and in need of nothing. He created the world for his own glory, not because he was deficient or he needed to have somebody to be friends with. Because God himself is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's a community, if you will, in God from eternity. But God, through his own perfect wisdom, brought forth the universe. But the world, the cosmos without God, is nothing. But God without the cosmos is still God. You see, I'm trying to put us all in our place. (laughs) And if you know your place, you can know how to walk out the Christian life. If you don't know your place... You'll just wander around. And Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. And people without Christ are lost. In fact, Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. 
So we need to lift up the empty hands of receiving what God has done for us. But to receive it properly, we have to understand some things. And when we bring the message to bear to the watching and waiting world, we have to start with their perspective and then what our perspective is and define the terms, illustrate the terms. God, self-existent being, the giver of every gift. See, that's who God is. And he'll go on, Paul will go on to talk more about God. There's so much here. And your pastor only gave me three hours to preach this morning. So I'll try to hurry up a little bit here. So let's consider Acts 17, 26 through 28. He's continuing to talk about God's role in the world and who we are as humans before our great creator. 26, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. So God is not only the creator and designer, self-existent, he's providential. He arranges, organizes, and orders everything. Nothing happens by chance. Now, why did he do this? Verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Now, that's interesting because you might say that the Greeks are reaching out to God with all of their gods and all of their idols even their inscription to an unknown God. Well, in a sense they are, but they're not receiving reality the way it is. They're trying to create gods instead of receiving the God that they can know something about through nature, through the seasons, through God's provision, giving them life, giving them a sense of morality and so on. So they need to know more. It's not that the non-Christian knows nothing, but the non-Christian needs to know the fundamental realities of the universe who God is, who we are, and how we should come to God through the work of Christ. God did this so they would seek Him and perhaps reach out to find Him. Now, 28, For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. So God is the personal creator of the entire human race. The Athenians thought that they belonged to a special race that was created from the dirt. So when Paul gives this message, he's putting them in their place. You're a human along with every other human. You're created by God. There's a unity to the human race. So you can't claim that because you're an Athenian, you're somehow better off with God or the spiritual dimension than anyone else. And Paul emphasizes that God is the Lord of history. He determines the exact times and places of all people. Now, the Epicureans couldn't say this because they believed in multiple gods that had very little to do with the world, with history, with people. And the Stoics believed in this universal essence or principle that is not an agent, not a person who brings things about, who makes promises and so on. The God of reality given to us in the Bible and through Christ is not like that. Now, While God, in a sense, has overlooked the past, something new has happened in the work of Christ. People are groping about, but they need more information. They need a whole change of life. Now, Paul says about God, in him we live and move and have our being. That is a quote from a Greek thinker called Epimenides, who was a Cretan poet in a work called Cretitia. So he knows what's true in their philosophy. If he's talking to Jews, he goes to the scriptures. If he's talking to the Greeks, he finds something in one of their works or something they can know from nature, and then he presents it to them in a new context, within a new worldview. You got this right. We're his offspring, and in him we live and move and have our being. So that means that God is here. God is present. He already said that God is providential. And we are his offspring. We're not aliens in this world. We are related to God. He's the superior and we're the inferior, but there is an association. The deeper biblical teaching is that we're made in the image and likeness of God, but Paul doesn't appeal to that directly because they don't know the Hebrew Scriptures. But he's using a different way of putting it to say the same thing. And that's very significant for Christian mission and ministry is you use the language of the culture without sacrificing the biblical content, the biblical concepts. 
So, he's saying to the Greeks that you're partially right, but you're fundamentally wrong. And he hasn't been booed off the stage. He's probably been there for over an hour now. So let's continue. Verse 29 through 31. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Now, this is a philosophical argument. He's saying, wait a minute. You believe that we're God's offspring. If we're his offspring, then God is greater than we are. But you make idols that are less than we are. That makes no sense. We're God's offspring. Then we create these idols and worship these idols. You're actually going from the greatest to the second greatest to idols, (laughs) lifeless things. So instead of worshiping God your Father, the creator of the universe, the designer, you're worshiping the works of your own hands. You see what he's saying? It doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. And we should have the savvy intellectually to not only know the gospel and present it to people creatively and wisely and compassionately, cogently, but also be able to unmask the illogic and falsehood of other perspectives as best we can in humility, in the strength of the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth. Verse 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul is saying, you're not a total stranger to God, but your groping about didn't have very much success. Now I'm revealing to you who God is and what he has done. So now is the time to change. Now is the time to heed the message. Take it seriously. And Paul says something quite profound and controversial. And I want you to spend some time thinking about this. It's one of the most profound verses in the Bible related to outreach and mission. And it cuts against the grain of our entire society. So let's look at this. 30 again. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Commands. A command is not a description. A command says not just you ought to do this, but you must do this. So I command my students when I write a syllabus, if they can figure out all the inconsistencies in my syllabi. But I say, the paper is due now. Right? We take the test then. So if you want to pass the class, you must do this. Now, I'm just a finite, fallible being who needs to be directed by God and who has been redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ. But I can give commands. Some of them are good. Now, God's commands are always right and good. And notice the nature of the command. God doesn't say, well, pick and choose and create your own smorgasbord spirituality. Because you're free and I love you and I would never impose anything on you that you didn't already like. Notice what he says. God, this God that he's talked about, creator, designer, self-existent, providential, God now commands everyone everywhere to repent. Everyone excludes no one. Everyone everywhere. There's no place to hide. What? To repent. That means a radical change of mind, a new way of thinking, a new way of living. You turn from yourself, from your idols, to the Creator. God now commands everyone everywhere to repent. So when we go into the marketplace of ideas, our Areopagus, and we don't want to suffer from the fear of that, agoraphobia, remember this, that the command of God is on your side. So when you go into a situation, you interact with people, try to find common ground, know something of their perspective, their history. You're wanting to speak the truth in love. You're not starting from nothing because people have some natural knowledge of God. We see that here. You see it in Romans 1. You see it in Psalm 19 and elsewhere. And secondly, if you're a Christian, you know the Scripture, you know that the mission of God is active in the world. 
So in the authority of God himself that we know in Scripture, we can say you need to come to Christ. That is, Christ is Lord. Uh, He wasn't elected Lord, and he won't be dethroned. So he is Lord. He did take that crown of thorns. He did go to a cross and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did that for you. And now you need to repent. Turn away from self as God. Turn away from all false gods, whatever they are, and find your place in the creation among other human beings before God. See, repentance is not a bad thing. It's not, well, you can't enjoy the things that are really enjoyable. It means finding your true reference point in God and God incarnate in Jesus Christ and then living accordingly. You say no to the world, the flesh, and the devil. You say yes to God, his kingdom, his scripture, and life becomes meaningful. Everything you do is meaningful because the Holy Spirit is working. You're learning. You're interacting with people. You're contributing to culture for the glory of God. You're trying to be a strong witness in the marketplace for Christ. And you realize that what you do not only has limited, finite significance. You teach classes. You write books. I'm thinking about myself. You're a good parent and so on. It has eternal significance. And that changes everything. Because it's not some vague, abstract idea of the eternal. It's the eternal, creator, self-existent God who now calls everyone everywhere to repent because he set it up. He put people where he wanted them to be. He's left a witness so that they would grope and find him. But ultimately, you cannot find him unless he reveals himself to you and you are accountable to that. You don't suppress the truth. You don't create an idol you can control. You don't create your own spirituality, which could be revised at any time. You don't create your own gender. You're given things by God, and then you recognize that. Essentially, it has to do with bowing your knee before reality. You can do it now in this life and be forgiven and justified and filled with the Spirit. You begin this adventure of of witness and suffering and meaning and all the rest of it. Or eventually, no one can escape eventually everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God now commands everyone everywhere to repent. Now, how could anybody say that? Look at 31. For he, God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, that's Christ. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So this is not merely arguing from principles about reality. He does that, and he does that well, and it's anointed by the Holy Spirit. He's also talking about a specific thing that happened in history. We know now that God has been active in history, putting people where he wanted so they would reach out and find him. Now God has been revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So how in the world could you call the world to repent apart from Jesus? You couldn't, because there is only one religion on the face of the earth through all history that is based on the resurrection of its divine founder. It's completely different in that respect from every other religion that has been, is, or will be. And it's factual. It's not an idea of resurrection, an idea of transcendence. It's God coming down in the second person of the Trinity Christ, living a perfect, sinless life, teaching nothing but the truth, explaining scripture, explaining history, explaining the universe as much as we can understand it, and then putting it all to the test on the cross, dying for the sins of the world, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting from Psalm 22. And then he dies, he's buried He rose again from the dead. There's tremendous evidence. It's not a leap of faith that he did that. It's true, and you experience that when you become born again, and a whole new life develops out of that. And on that basis, we present to the world this message of the one true God who came in Christ, who calls everyone to repent. How can we do that? We know that sometime in the future, there will be a final judgment It will be carried out by Jesus Christ, the same one who lived, 
and died, was buried, rose again, ascended, is at the right hand of the Father in all glory, will come again. So he's warning them. History is not a cycle that goes over and over. There's a beginning, creation, if you will. There's a middle, the Christ work, the Christ event. And there will be at least an end to history as we know it. There'll be the beginning of the eternal kingdom and the final judgment, heaven and hell. So he's saying, get ready. You will be judged. And we call you to repent and to know Christ on the basis of this man that God has appointed. You might be thinking, well, where's the cross in this? Could Paul possibly preach a message and not talk about Christ's suffering on the cross on our behalf? I'm sure that he did. Remember, I told you that this is a summary. So if he's talking about the resurrection, he had to have talked about the cross. But we're getting an overview, and it is a masterful presentation. Let's see what the result is here. 32 through 34. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council, the Areopagus. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, a prestigious person. Also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. Now again, just as in Thessalonica, Berea, now in Athens, some sneer at him. Now they didn't start a riot, at least, in this situation. You don't have any riotous philosophers here. I've met a few. But some sneered. Some became followers of Paul. They accepted the message. And others said, we'd like to hear more about this. Now, for an audience of philosophers, this is not bad. Philosophers tend to be cranky and fussy and don't want to admit they're wrong and so on. This is a tremendous effect of the gospel in this setting. So Paul was not a failure here. He displayed courage, persistence. He's kicked out of Thessalonica. He's kicked out of Berea. He shows up in Athens, the great cultural center of the ancient world. Unscheduled mission trip. Teaches all he can to everybody. They insult him. They call him a babbler, a seed picker. They don't even understand what he's teaching. They say, oh, you're advocating foreign gods because when he said Jesus and the resurrection, they thought that was two gods. So they don't get it. They don't particularly like him. But the Holy Spirit had a plan, was working out to present the message. Paul displayed courage, knowledge. He knew what he believed and why. He had an important effect, impact, on his audience. We don't know of a church that was formed early on in the history of the church, but there's some evidence from church history that a church was eventually formed at Athens. And the writer, Luke, presents this story as a very constructive, instructive account of Christian mission. And it's the only account we have in the New Testament of a Christian speaker addressing people who are not Jews and not God-fearers. So they are very removed from the God of the Bible, but he knows how to bring the God of the Bible, the God of reality, to them. And we can learn so much from this. We need to be prepared as best we can to understand the Bible, theology, apologetics, how to defend the faith, We need courage to go into the marketplace of ideas, not be afraid. God has given us a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind, not a spirit of fear, Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 1.7. So we need to be able to expose false spirituality and to be animated by a passion for God. We don't want to see people worship idols. We don't want to see people estranged from God forever. We want to see God honored. God is not honored by idols. God is not honored by worshiping of self. There's nothing good, healthy, right in combining all kinds of spiritualities into your own designer package. That's the way of death. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And apart from him, we're all lost. So we need to be greatly distressed, see that fire from the Lord focused on speaking the truth and love to people, listening to them, interacting with them, knowing where to start, knowing when to finish. We need to know exactly what we believe and why and continue to grow in this. I've been a Christian now for 39 years. I became a Christian here in Anchorage 
through the Abbott Loop movement many years ago, 1976. And I have been studying, teaching, writing, debating all these years. And I still have so much to learn. And it doesn't matter how much I know. I have to depend on the Lord every second. Before any sermon, any teaching, any radio show, any debate, teaching my classes at the seminary, I have some prayer. God, I want to speak the truth in love with power so that it becomes knowledge in those who hear. It's truth about what matters, that it will stick to their souls and spread for the advancement of God's kingdom and the overthrow of Satan. That's how important our words are. And Jesus said, by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned. We need to continue to learn through the power of the Holy Spirit. And work hard to find common ground with people. It may not even be intellectual common ground. It may be hobbies. It may be where did you grow up? And you interact with people, talk to them, listen to their stories, what their beliefs are, and then begin a conversation. Find out what do you think about God or is there an afterlife? What is, what is meaning in life to you? And you listen and you talk and you live in the moment of the mission of God. And it's exciting. There's nothing to be afraid of. Now, don't venture where you don't belong, but at the same time, you might say, well, take some prudent risks for the sake of the kingdom. Why not? Paul did. He didn't have an assured outcome, except that he was called by God to teach and preach. He knew that, so he went into the situation. We're such a quantifiable society. We want everything laid out in a formula. Well, that's really not the Christian life. We have the truth given to us in Scripture, and the truth will not change. God will not change. But as we look at life and meet people and interact and read things, it's an adventure. There's so much to learn. There's so many things you can't figure out ahead of time. I was just talking to your pastor before the the service here, and we found out that we both had very low high school GPAs, identical, I think. We won't say what it was. It was at least a positive value of some sort. <clears throat> and, and I thought, 40 years ago, uh, I, was not, <laughs> I was not a believer, and I never thought I'd be in a church preaching. I never thought I'd be in a seminary teaching. never thought I'd be a professional philosopher. In fact, I'm here for my 40th reunion from West High, and one of my classmates was here this morning, and I interacted with him at some of these events before this. And he did not know I became a Christian 39 years ago. He was a Christian all through junior high and high school, and he used to pray for me. And last night, he found out that I had become a Christian. And that was just a wonderful moment. And I said, thank you for praying for that hippy-dippy crazy character who thought you were a square. (laughs) So God is a powerful, all-powerful God. He's made himself known in creation in the Incarnation, in the Scripture. And why don't you want to follow God? Think about it. Uh, We were talking about that during the worship, that our desires, in their deepest ways, need to be for the Lord, for His kingdom, for those things that are eternal. And we have this need for fulfillment as humans, but because of our sin, we typically channel it in the wrong way. So we have idols and we have obsessions and addictions. But if what I'm saying is true, and it is, I'm thoroughly convinced it's true as a philosopher, as someone who in a sense has tried to disprove Christianity for 40 years. In fact, I was hiking flat top yesterday, not all the way up, of course, but part way up. And I remembered that after I became a Christian in 1976, I climbed all the way up. I was in better shape then. And my non-Christian friend, John Karpoff, said, well, you're a Christian now. Do you know what you're going to do? You're going to be around Christians, read Christian books, and never interact with the world of ideas anymore. He's basically saying, if you're a Christian, you cannot be a real thinker. John Karpoff, you were wrong. And I'm thankful that you were wrong. Because I'll never forget that statement. Uh, God called me to understand why I believe, why I believe it. And then, in his power to outthink the world for Christ. And I have never been disappointed in the truth and the applicability of Christianity. 
We all suffer as Christians. I've suffered many things, and if I had not been a Christian, I wonder how I could even get through some of the things that I've had to suffer through. But Christianity is true. It's reasonable. Paul was right. God will judge the world by the man he has appointed, and he's proven this by raising him from the dead. And especially now, it's no time for agoraphobia. It's no time to be afraid of the marketplace as a follower of Christ. Our culture is declining radically and rapidly. I've been studying philosophy, apologetics, culture, history for many years, almost 40 years. And you could see the foundations being destroyed. And the foundations are almost entirely destroyed. When that happens, things collapse quickly. And I know your pastor has spoken on this with same-sex marriage and other things. But it's serious. And I earnestly believe that Christians will face some pretty significant persecution over this issue. Perhaps churches losing tax exemption, perhaps fines. Who knows? Who knows? But here's the issue. Jesus is Lord. He's come. He's offered salvation. He can equip us for every good work. Christianity is true. It's reasonable no matter what anybody else says. As Paul says in Romans 3, 4, let God be true, though everyone be a liar. So if we're standing with Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, then we know that he is true no matter what anyone says. And we desire so passionately to bring this message to individuals, to cultures, any way we can. Our family, our friends, where we work, in politics, in the arts, every area. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the one who will judge the world at the end of time, justly not arbitrarily. So my question to myself and to you is, why not follow Jesus with everything that we have? Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the depths of what you've given us. How while this account is almost 2,000 or almost 2,000 years old, it's still so powerful for us. And it gives us principles that can be applied anywhere at any time. Lord, give us the courage, give us the wisdom, give us the authority from you that changes the world for the better. And Lord, give us the perseverance when we are sneered at or when it seems that too too few people are coming to Christ. So we ask Holy Spirit to convict us of where we have been worldly or lazy or lacking in zeal and then equip us to every good work. And Lord, along the way, give us joy and a sense of your mission in what we do, come what may. In Christ's name, amen.